So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And I felt a little bit of surge of adrenaline, a welcome surge of adrenaline, just saying that. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tell you, I'm fighting a little fatigue today. I'm not sure what that's about. I uh, uh, feel like I slept a lot last night. Uh-huh. But I tell you what, I, I, I'm reading a new book. We, we devoted a whole new, a whole episode to books a little while ago. But yeah, I, I'm reading one called uh, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor. It's a whole book about breathing. Oh man, uh, not something that I—it's something that I've been doing a lot of for the last sixty-three years, but haven't thought a lot about. And uh, just thinking about breathing and trying to do a little bit of conscious breathing is freaking wearing me out, David. <laughs> That's wild. So tell me about this. Do you do it um, as a as a uh, like a contemplative practice, or is this a um, a way to manage anxiety to, or how, how did, what well, there's it? all kinds of, there's all kinds of reasons for doing it. And I'm a rookie. I mean, I'm just part way into the book and I'm just beginning to do these exercises, but there are all kinds of reasons to pay attention yeah. to breath. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 uh, long-term health consequences of breathing poorly. And I've always, I know that I'm a shallow breather. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I know that uh, my wife will tell you that I snore. Now that has diminished greatly since I lost about thirty pounds, but I still, you know, yeah. So I got all kinds of you know breathing issues, which if this guy is to be believed, those complications are only going to grow as the years pass unless I do something mm. intentional to address them. Yeah. Uh, and as somebody who used to sing a lot, you know, I, I. I, uh, I I have noticed that now I, I don't sing very often. I rarely, in fact, rarely sing these days, but I've noticed I don't have the wind that I used to have. I, I, mm. I don't, I can't, I, I can't carry a phrase as long as I used to. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what, even when I stop to think about it in conversation, I'm taking shorter breaths. I'm a shallow breather kind of, so I'm trying to change that. Mm-hmm. But anytime here it is, it, it's like recovery, I guess. Yeah. I'm trying now to apply some conscious control to an unconscious autonomic behavior. Ah, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not used to thinking about breathing. And when I try to, con- it's, it's just freaking weird. So I'll have to, I'll keep you updated. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how long I can maintain interest and focus on this practice. Uh, mm-hmm. See how what changes I can make. Mm-hmm. But anyway, 
Maybe yeah. that's why I'm tired. All I know is I've never thought about breathing before in my life. And now suddenly I am thinking about it. You thinking about <laughs> anything new, David? Oh, gosh. What am I thinking about? I, you know, I am thinking about um, how I need to um, adjust my, my, my time. I am, oh. you know, this pandemic, we've talked about it a little bit, but, you know, it, it, it takes its toll in a lot of ways, but it's also taught us a lot about ourselves and our pace and what we are investing ourselves in. And I am, um, I'm realizing that I don't, um, I don't have the drive to work until seven o'clock every night anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love my clients and I love what I do, but I don't, love, um, you know, not getting home till, you know, seven thirty, and my dog looking at me like, you know, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, if I could let myself out, I would, but you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have keys and I don't have thumbs. So I'm good. Oh, you know, Lily. Oh, yeah. Lily, she's suffering right now. Um, and so I, and I'm thinking about it and I'm going, you know, you can manage this, you have control over this and you need to step in into a place where you you block out things and you sift out things that they may be good things, but maybe they're not things that I have to do specifically and um, and and maybe be a little bit better delegator and, you know, on and on. So yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah. really seriously looking at how I'm using my time because I, I am I always feel like I'm in a hurry. You know, that feeling of I'm, I'm always running late and I'm always in a hurry. And that's from just about the time I get up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's something wrong here. I need to address this with myself. So that's, you know, that's what I'm thinking about, honestly. Uh, you know, I was, I was uh, on, uh, kind of on the same issue. I was journaling yesterday about, about uh, agency. This, I, I've been reactive for most of my life rather than proactive. Right. I, I'm a highly adaptive person and I learned almost chameleon-like behaviors early on, which is one of the ways that I was able to survive undetected as an addict for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the way that I was trained as a child, and this is something I think that you know uh, will bear further investigation uh, after today's interview, but early as a child, I was not really told that I have a lot of agency in this world. Mm, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, ag- aggression was conditioned out of me early. Right. Yeah. It's bad to be aggressive. Yeah. We are not pushy. Pushy people are bad. Yeah. Uh, I learned not only not to be aggressive, but not to be assertive. So mm-hmm. agency, positive agency does not come naturally to me. Yeah. Um, that's why I defaulted to passive aggression. Mm-hmm. And passive aggression, that buried anger, that, uh, uh, you know, unacknowledged resentment was a fuel for so much of my acting out during my years of active addiction. Yeah. Well, and, and but, interesting you say that because our guest today is going to talk about the impact of that very um, type of type of uh, dilemma uh, in our early development and how it informs how we'll handle uh, later trauma or later, um, you know, conflict mm-hmm. in our adult lives uh, and how that plays into some really significant um, compulsive and addictive behaviors. 
Oh yeah. It's a, it's a great conversation that you are not, you're going to be so glad you tuned into this episode. Stick with us. We'll be back with our guest on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, I'm glad uh, to have another uh, guest on the field who can talk in an area of personal interest to me, which is sex addiction. Uh, you, know, our, our, you know, you alcoholics and drug addicts get a lot of play on this show. It's, <laughs> uh, sex addicts, we need, we need our turn. <laughs> you need some equal uh, time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, you have found a, a premier expert in the field, David. Would you introduce our guest? Well, yes, I would. Dr. Michael Barta is with us today, and Michael comes to us from Boulder, Colorado, but uh, he's also involved in a treatment facility here in uh, the greater Nashville area, the Integrated Life Center, and um, uh, we've had Ryan Chapman, uh, who uh, heads up that uh, treatment right. program here on the podcasts before uh, with Holly Cook uh, and um, and Michael uh, has become part of the the Nashville um, treatment scene here and uh, Michael has a book about trauma-induced sexual addiction that I want him to uh, talk with us but uh, Michael welcome to the positive sobriety podcast thanks so much for having me absolutely yeah. appreciate you making the time yeah. So uh, one of the things we like to do at the top of the show, Michael, is we like our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you can share a bit of your personal story. How did you wind up in the field? What A, a quick description of the long and winding road that got you to where you are. Yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. So I got sober from alcohol and drugs in 1986. And um you know, I thought that that was the end of, of my issues with, you know, being taken over by something. Mm -hmm. um, but soon after that, you know, after the drugs and alcohol were gone, uh, I found myself really interested in um, sex. And uh, that was another form for me to escape the pain, you know, instead of really going in and finding out what was going on. You know, I just turned to a, another thing that uh, that that helped me regulate my own emotions. I didn't know I was doing that at the time, but that's what turned out to be. And that 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 lasted for quite a while. I, I you know, I was 22 years sober when I hit my bottom uh, wow. with, with sex addiction. Um, you know, that came to, uh, you know, a climatic end um, of, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of loss. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that was my final wake up call um, to say, hey, something's really going on here. This isn't normal behavior anymore. You know, I was I was banking on the other people I was hanging out with and, you know, society that <clears throat> what I was doing was pretty normal, but it turned out that it wasn't, you know, actually um, a main, uh, uh, something used by the mainstream society as a way to regulate their emotions. So <clears throat> I went to treatment for 30 days for that. 
And then I got out and I took a couple years off uh, and just really focused on, you know, getting, getting myself back and, you know, looking at the deeper issues that were causing me to want to look outside of myself to feel better. Yeah. And during that time, you know, I, I was already a psychologist and I was thinking, well, you know, what can I do with this? You know, my other career is gone. I'm, um, you know, just sitting here and it was almost like there was this fresh start at life, you know, and I, mm. I always say, you know, my, my, uh, my higher power didn't, you know, just hit me with a two by four, he hit me with a two by 12, um, mm. <laughs> you know, to wake me up and, and yeah. say, you know, what are you doing? You know, I gave you this life and I gave you, you know, this, this opportunity and, um, you're, you know, you're using it, it you're just being selfish with it. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, that was a real awakening for me at the time. And, um, and, and so, you know, when you lose your identity, um, overnight, like I did, um, that I'd been building for years and years and mm -hmm. suddenly you're going, who am I now? Mm -hmm. um, it's a really wake up call. And it was a terrifying experience, but it was, it was a wonderful, beautiful experience at the same time. Mm. Uh, you know, that I was like, okay, w what's this really about? So I called up uh, the people who train um, sex addiction therapists. That's Patrick Carnes' organization out in, um, in Arizona. Mm -hmm. I told them my story and I said, Hey, can I, can I join you guys? And they said, yeah, come, you know, come to our training. So I went to the first training and I was sitting in the first training thinking I'm the only sex addict in the room. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and all of a sudden I find out, you know, everybody in there, well, not everybody, but the large majority of people who were doing the training were in recovery from sex addiction too. And I was just blown away because, you know, sex addiction, it, it, it's a lonely thing. It's like, I'm the only one that's doing this. Mm. Yeah. There's so much shame in it, so much remorse that it's, you know, it's like, I'm the only one that's a weirdo on the planet. Mm. Well, that was really refreshing to find out, you know, I'm in there with a bunch of other people in recovery. And I should have known that because, you know, I've been around um, addiction recovery for, you know, 35 years. And, most of the people who are treating, you know, the recovering alcoholics and drug addicts have been there themselves as well. Right. Sure. And, and that's been so beneficial for me, um, relating with clients, you know, and, and it's like people, the, the people I work with really find a lot of relief in knowing that, you know, I walked this road too. Mm -hmm. I suffered from this as well. It's not just me. I didn't just read this out of a book. Um, you know, I had real personal experience with it and I, you know, I, I, I'm able to go into the darkness with them. And, but, but the difference is me being, you know, in recovery, I'm, I'm able to, I'm able to hold their hand and walk them out at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just not yeah. about going in the darkness with them. So I started a private practice in Boulder, you know, soon after that started seeing sex addicts and I decided, you know what, I want to do multiple days of treatment at one time and I started doing that and people weren't getting, you know, people were getting better, but there was still a high recidivism rate mm. of relapse. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? You know? And, and I'm about two years into, and, you know, I'm starting to get sketchy and, 
you know, thinking, wow, you know, was I really that bad? All those, all those kinds of things that come yeah. back in the addiction, even though I was going to a lot of, you know, 12 step meetings, you know, talking with my sponsor, seeing a therapist, all those types of things. So I really dug in and started learning um, what's really going on with my brain. And, you know, so I turned to the field of neurobiology and neuroscience mm-hmm. and started understanding um, what was really going on. And, and what I did is I stumbled on um, what I think is, you know, the cause of these behaviors. And, uh, you know, when I'm studying the brain and I'm looking at the neuroscience and checking things out with people who are also, you know, experts in the field that were, you know, really focusing on addiction and trauma and, um, you know, neurobiology, the pieces started to add up. And so I started implementing that in my treatment. And so over 11 years, you know, I developed a model called TENSA that you mentioned earlier, which is called the trauma-induced sexual addiction. Mm -hmm. And in a nutshell, what that is, is it's like, okay, you know, addiction isn't just, uh, it's not a moral failure. And Mm -hmm. it's about, it has a purpose. Yeah. And what I found, you know, in my work is that the purpose of this is, it's an unconscious attempt by the individual to regulate an unregulated nervous system. Now that's simple in, 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 in simple terms, right? So, mm-hmm. well, where did the unregulated nervous system come from? And what I'm discovering and what I did discover is that the environments we grew up in have a lot to do with, you know, the formation of the brain. Mm-hmm. And if that autonomic nervous system Um, doesn't have the right ingredients to form correctly, well, then a person turns into um, a a man or a woman that's going to regulate their own nervous system. Mm -hmm. And what that means is they're going to start looking outside of themselves for comfort, whether Mm -hmm. that's sex, whether that's food, drugs, um, whether it's, you know, work, whatever, you know, and, and they're not, they're not sitting there, you know, we're not sitting there on the couch going, Oh, I think my nervous system's unregulated. I'm going to go find something to regulate it. Right. You know, we, we trip on these, we, we discover them as we go along. And, and if I go back and I look, you know, that sex was part of my regulatory system for a long period of time. Mm. It wasn't, you know, destructive, but it was what I turned to when I was stressed. Mm-hmm. You know, before I had the keys to my mom and dad's liquor cabinet, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had to steal those, but, um, we, you know, and so that's how I got here. And, you know, I continue to develop this model and, and the people I'm working with are like, wow, I didn't know that. And, you know, so I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, produce, a paradigm shift in the, in the addiction treatment field. If people want it, you know, that, you know, there is something going on within us that is causing this to happen. It's just, you know, it's not, we got, we got struck with, um, you know, bad luck. Right. And so, um, you know, when I'm looking at it and, and, and it was great because right when I'm getting ready to publish my book in 2016, 
the Surgeon General came out with his paper on addiction. And his headline was, you know, um, that addiction is a brain disorder, not a moral failing. Right, right. And so I started really looking at brain disorder and, and to just to define brain disorder in normal terms, it would be just, you know, the systems that's in the brain and it's called an autonomic nervous system. Um, it's, you know, your parasympathetic and your, and your sympathetic nervous system is skewed. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, from there it was easy because I could trace it back and say, okay, what skewed the nervous system? And, you know, it comes really, it really comes down to the early environment, the attachment, the attunement that was going on. And this isn't about having bad parents. So I hope no one's hearing that. Mm -hmm. It's just about having, you know, we didn't get what we needed as addicts in order for our nervous systems to form in such a way that we could regulate ourselves in healthy ways. Mm -hmm. You know, we went for the quick fix. Yeah. So that's that in a nutshell. I hope that was uh, adequate. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Now, now, in your book, you kind of describe there are kind of different ways this thing can break depending mm-hmm. on the childhood environment. Yep. And uh, for you, that's you kind of see it falling into a few categories. Can you can you quickly describe those for us? So I can because you know in. in this is where it's, it's, it's hilarious because, well, I don't know if it's hilarious, but it's, it's just really common for people when I start talking about their childhoods to automatically defend their parents. Yeah. And I have to remind them that this isn't an indictment, that this is, yeah. this is a view of what was going on. And, you know, what happens with attachment and attunement So attunement is when a caregiver can automatically respond to the child's messages of distress. All right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the possible ways that can happen is you can have a person that's just checked out on drugs or alcohol. Right. But Mm -hmm. you can also have a mom that's overworked, that's going to work to put food on the table. There could be numerous siblings running around, you know, and there's just not enough time to give that, you know, individual attention that, that that's required by the brain to form in such a way that it's like, I'm okay. I'm safe the way I am. Right. And, and those children auto regulate. And what that means is they start meeting their own needs, you know, mm-hmm. they start meeting their own, own emotional needs and it's no fault of the parent. Right now, we do have parents that, you know, do, you know, not function correctly or they got their own stuff going on. But the large majority of people I see are just coming from environments and families that there just wasn't this bonding that was really solidly going on. Yeah. And and so, you know, what needs to happen in the biggest word that I can come up with to describe what absolutely needs to happen for the brain to form normally is a consistent environment. So the needs are met more often than not. Mm -hmm. And there's people there that are there more often than not. You know, you can turn to a caregiver and say, I have this need and it's fully met. 
And so, you know, I grew up with a father that was in World War II and, you know, a mom that was a, you know, she was a worker and, you know, helping fight World War II. Mm -hmm. And that whole generation wasn't about emotion. Right. Right. That generation was about survival. And in fact, if you had emotions during that time, that was a detriment to survival. Mm. Yeah. So when I was raised, it was like, no, you don't feel, you know, Mm. whatever you Mm -hmm. do. Yeah. You know, don't have an emotion. Don't make a fuss. Don't rock the boat. Those types of things. Yeah. Now, were they bad parents? Absolutely not. They were, they were great parents. They cared for me greatly. But the emotional piece just was not there. And that's what I find with most of the people I treat is this emotional component was somehow missing. Mm -hmm. And so I really look to the attachment and attunement of what's going on because that gives a person the ability to know that their authentic self is okay. Mm. And then they can go and bond with other people. If you don't have a belief, a strong belief and knowledge that who you are as a person is perfectly okay, Mm -hmm. you're not going to bond with other people and you're going to come up with all kinds of behaviors to hide that wounded self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a lonely place. Yeah. Uh, So let's let's go find something to soothe ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And like I said, I wasn't five years old and look, knowing that, you know, I didn't get what I needed and my dopamine um, reward system was skewed and all that stuff. I just knew when I found dopamine in any mm-hmm. form, mm-hmm. I felt I, I didn't feel good. I felt normal, which equated good. Right. And so my brain's very smart. Right. And it said, hey, Michael, you want to do this more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I started doing it more and more. Now, the problem with doing behaviors and substances that um, elicit huge amounts of dopamine, you know, um, high intensity sex, pornography, those types of things, those are actually damaging to the brain because they're, they're, what they're going to do is they're going to blow out the, and this is very simplified, they're going to blow out the dopamine receptors. And when that happens, then what we what what we need is more to get the same effect. Mm -hmm. So that's how the progression and escalation come into play. Mm -hmm. What was working yesterday just isn't doing it anymore. Let's try it. Let's do a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And we do that until we're crossing lines we never thought we would cross. And now we're in trouble. Right. Right. Now we're hurting the community. We're hurting our families, those types of things. And it's just to get that, that feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are the biggest components that I would say are, you know, that I work with, that I focus on is where was the wounding that happened that made it un- made you unable to be able to trust and really bond with another person. Mm -hmm. Right. So we go in and we really work on finding out that. And, you know, from that and and luckily in the last 10 years, the the trauma treatment field has blown up and and there's numerous models now, brain spotting, 
mm-hmm. um, EMDR, um, those types of things that you can go in and actually repair these traumas mm-hmm. so that you're not, you're, you're not led by them anymore when something bad happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Michael, so, um, how do you help someone kind of come to the place of understanding that that's really what they're dealing with as opposed to people who just want to attack behavior? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just this, you know, especially in the, in the South where we live, the, the moral code and the, um, you know, the mindset is always on this, you know, stopping this bad behavior, you know, like moralizing it and all of that. How can you, how can we help people understand that this is coming from a place that a person eventually loses their power to choose in some ways? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's perfect because, you know, it, it what I did that was different and, and I did this because of my own experience in treatment, because I went there to this treatment center and I paid a lot of money and they focused on my behaviors. And I'm like, mm-hmm. guys, <laughs> if I could stop my behaviors, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> if I could stop my behaviors. You and I wouldn't be talking on this radio show today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, we can't stop. And that's what, you know, people have a really hard time. Um understanding or accepting because I don't want to be told I can't stop anything. Right. And, you know, it's, it's when we get to the point of, you know, I, I just can't stop on my own. And that's really the key for everything. I mean, Bill Wilson in 1935 and in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous showed us that we have to say we're powerless over this. And powerless is a bad word to a lot of people. But powerless doesn't mean that I have no power in the rest of areas of my life. It just means that when it comes to my addiction, whatever form that comes to, I can't control it. I can't stop on my own, no matter how many times I've sworn off those types of things. And so with this model, it really goes in and it goes Oh, and you know, I, I always say, I always tell my clients, I think this should be required second grade reading (laughs) because none of us are ever taught how to, how our brain actually works, you know, and what the nervous system does and what it's for and those types of things. So actually what the addicts are doing with their destructive behavior is a real normal attempt to defend themselves, but it's a really bad way to defend themselves from further wounding. Right. But when we go in and we look at, Hey, this is what your brain's actually doing. This is how your brain was formed. And this is how you're going to respond in these situations. People are much more able to accept this idea that they can't stop on their own or, you know, that they're not this morally broken, corrupt person. Because I don't know about you guys, but I swore off alcohol for a long time. I swore off sex for a long time. I'm in the process of swearing off of cake right now. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, and me too, man. Yeah, <laughs> I feel you. It's like you know what? I have to go in and go. 
you know, why am I really eating this cake? Right. You know, and it's comfort. Yeah. It, it's not hunger. So our reward systems get taken over and we rely on them to live instead of doing it with our conscious brain. So, you know, real quickly, when we go in and we look at the brain, you know, there's a conscious part of the brain and then there's a subconscious part of the brain. And the conscious part of the brain is just that big old honking frontal lobe we got on the top of our head. Mm -hmm. The unconscious brain is, you know, the limbic brain and, and the reptilian brain. And that's where most of the trauma stays. So when we see something that's vaguely familiar to what hurt us in the past, we're going to automatically go to a way to cure the pain from that, that um, past hurt. And so when we know how our brain works, then what we can do is, you know, we can really work on staying in that frontal frontal part of our brain because that's the only brain we think with mm -hmm. the subconscious brain is reactive and you know i've also noticed that you know addiction occurs in the subconscious brain and the reason i know that is because addicts don't really think about consequences when they're engaging in their behavior mm -hmm. they may think about it briefly beforehand they think about it a lot after Right. But while they're engaged in it, there's no thinking going on at all. Mm -hmm. Now, right. we can get a person to live in their frontal lobe where they're actively seeing consequences and they're actively managing in healthy ways, you know, the, these feelings and sensations and thoughts that are bombarding them from the old wounds and staying present it's much easier to avoid the hijacking that happens and therefore much easier to avoid relapse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, the, the difference between sobriety and recovery. It's like, you know, sobriety is I'm not doing that behavior anymore. That's it for me. Mm -hmm. And then recovery is, is the rest of my life. And what I really defined recovery as is that I'm recovering that authentic self that I was before I learned a story about myself that was untrue. Mm. And I That's started true. to really, you know, function out of that story that was untrue, that I'm not good enough, I'm unlovable, you know, I don't fit in. Whatever our deepest beliefs are about that, our unconscious beliefs, you know, we're going to act out. And the crazy part about addiction is, you know, what we're doing with that is we're just constantly reaffirming these deepest negative beliefs mm -hmm. that I'm not, you know, I'm not worthy. I don't fit. And then the problem is once we do that enough, people start agreeing with us. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we could now we have other people confirming that we're not a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, so recovery for me is getting back to the authentic self that there was never anything wrong with it. It was good enough. It was lovable, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my addiction took me down a road, you know, to just prove that untrue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I suffered for a long time, period of time like that. 
And so I hope that, you know, answered your question. I know I went, you know, off a little on a little tangent, but. No, that's that's great because it does answer my question uh, very, very well, because that's always um, where we seem to find ourselves with people, of course, was at the beginning, you know, have, you know, I, I've got to stop this bad behavior, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and then, um, sometimes people are willing to go down the road with you and sometimes they're not. And I would imagine in your work, you see a lot of very resistant people as you start to try to guide them through what might be really super painful places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are really hanging on to the beliefs that they're, they're not good enough, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we're trying to break that out. And, and the, the beautiful part is that the large majority of people that come to treatment with this type of treatment leave with their authentic self. Mm-hmm. You know, that's our goal at my, at my place is we want to return you to who you were. Yeah. You know, before, before you started believing that you were something else. Yeah. How long, Michael, do you recommend people come and stay um, when they come and seek out treatment with you? What we do right now at Begin Again in Boulder, we have a 14-day program. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, at the beginning were saying, you know, 14 days isn't enough. Mm. Well, yeah, it is. Because we don't use the traditional model of I'm going to go to group in the morning. I'm going to have, you know, lunch. And then I'm going to go in the group in the afternoon. And then I'm going to go to the fire pit and smoke cigarettes the rest of the day. Our guys, <laughs> right. get up, our guys get up at 7.30 in the morning and they go till 9.30 at night. Wow. And so we call it an intensive treatment because it is intensive a treatment, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's happening in this time is we're giving them psychoeducation about the brain, but we're, we're simultaneously working with them and their emotions to help them understand and, and show them really what's going on so that they have a lot of practice in this. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm much more able to regulate on my own in healthy ways than I ever thought possible. And one of the byproducts that happened of this model I formed that I had no intention on doing was that, you know, we have six, eight, 10 people at a time coming through these and the guys all live in one house. They cook together. They support one another. And that bonding is crucial. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them have said they've never felt that type of bond before. Wow. (laughs) Because these guys go through hell, Mm -hmm. right? Sure. We're uncovering, you know, every bad thing that happened to them in the, in the first week you know, from, from birth to present day. Mm, So there's a lot of pain in that. Right. And so they get to help each other and support one another through the pain and they get to really understand I'm not alone. Mm. This has happened to other people. And, you know, I don't know about you, um, but I thought I would be the only person on the planet like this. Mm. Cause I'm incredibly selfish, but you know, I, I really was relieved to know that other people are going through what I'm going through mm. and go ahead. 
I'll tell you, Michael, I was uh, uh, captivated. Uh, your book was recommended to me by somebody in the Samson Society who said they've been very helped by something called TINSA, trauma-induced uh, sexual addiction. Uh, when I heard that, it flashed back. I remember I've been in recovery now for a little over 20 years. It's amazing how many of the fellows and even a couple of the women that I sat in rooms with 20 years ago uh, went on to work in the field helping others in addiction. One of those guys uh, became a therapist. I knew he was working with, with sex addicts. One day I encountered him on the sidewalk, hadn't seen him in a in a year or so, I asked him how it was going. He said, uh, I said, are you still working with sex addicts? He said, oh, yeah. He says, I'm, I'm doing a lot of work uh, with trauma. And I said, uh, yeah, those, those two go together frequently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, 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 he fixed me with a gaze and said, no, they always go together. It's the first time I'd ever heard anybody say that. Uh, opened the door to a whole new uh, level of insight, this connection between trauma and addiction. Mm -hmm. You've described kind of uh, one type of trauma, like little t trauma, the the lack of attunement and uh, uh, in that attachment phase early Mm -hmm. in childhood. What are some other kinds of trauma that might later on flower into addiction? Well, trauma can form at any age, right? Mm-hmm. But what I see is that, you know, and you're describing them as little T traumas. And this this early wounding that caused our autonomic nervous system to not form correctly sets mm-hmm. the stage for everything, okay? Because trauma is subjective, right? So, I mean, there's the big T traumas too. There's war, there's rape, there's violence, there's, uh, you know, the pandemic. Mm. There's, um, you know, there's, um, you know, flash floods. There's all those big things that happen to us. We get a ton of first responders, right? Oh, yeah. Study done, you know, early on. and, And that study showed us that you know, the people that had the little T traumas earlier did much worse with big T traumas than people who, do, who didn't have the little T traumas early on. Hmm. Oh. And so what's going on, these war vets that were coming back, the difference between a war vet that was fairly stable, a war vet that had post-traumatic stress disorder, and a war vet that had complex post-traumatic stress disorder was um, equated with the amount of earlier trauma that the, that person experienced. Oh, so wow. So the whole thing, you know, and why I go back so far is because I want to know what set you up mm-hmm. and how you're going to respond. Because not everybody's going to respond the same, but if your nervous system isn't adequately equipped to handle things, then bad things, I call them bad things, but but traumatic things are going to affect you in a much larger way than if you did have some semblance of normalcy within your autonomic nervous system. Wow, that's fascinating. So... Um, you know, I'm old and I'm, I, I've already forgotten your question, 
No, no, you answered it beautifully. Okay. We were just talking about kind of the spectrum of trauma. And that really, that that's quite an insight that even our ability to handle what are typically referred to as big T traumas, those big, you know, acts of God that mm-hmm. T bonus, our ability to handle those uh, relates directly to yeah, early childhood and those experiences of attunement and attachment. Wow. Our, yeah, our our ability to self-soothe in healthy ways, our ability to seek the help we need, you know, our ability to let our body respond the way it needs to be, respond without reacting. Mm-hmm. You know, those are all signs of health. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when something happened, I was anything but re- responding normally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm like, you know, a couple shots will cure this, and, you know, you know, yeah. go act out sexually and that'll cure this. Mm-hmm. But it just comba- com- compounds the, you know, the feelings of worthlessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Michael, would you say that it's, does it boil down in some ways to self-loathing behavior? I think that's, I think that's a really good phrase. Okay. Because mm-hmm. Uh, this the way I always say it is this, and this this is just from my own experience that I was absolutely validated for what I did, mm-hmm. but I was never, and I can say never, validated for who I was. Uh, right. And so, if a person's not validated at their core for just being them, mm-hmm. what else are we going to make up about ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm being validated for what I'm doing and I don't do it right, I don't get the validation. Yeah. So what formed in my mind unconsciously early on, that if I'm not behaving in a certain way, then I'm not good. Yeah. I'm really not a worthy person. I'm not valuable to other people. And all those thoughts the negative cognitions come flooding in, you know, instantaneously. Anytime something happens, I mean, we can call it shame, but it's like, look, um, I really am not a good person and I don't like myself. And then I do things to make myself feel better, which actually confirm that I'm not a good person and I don't like myself. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I have to start hiding more. Right. Oh, man, I can't let anybody find this out. But I'm not I'm walking around with the knowledge that I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. So every time I'm in a new situation, you know, in the back of my mind, it's like, if you really knew me, you know, yeah. and yeah. what I was doing outside of this persona of perfection, you would run away from me. Right. Yeah. You know, so you're right. It comes back to these negative core beliefs we have about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, the book is TINSA, T-I-N-S-A, TINSA, A Neurological Approach to the Treatment of Sex Addiction. Uh, and I do recommend it. It's available at least on Amazon and I'm sure at uh, the finer bookstores everywhere. If our listeners uh, want to find out more about the Integrative Life Center, uh, the work you do in Nashville, or uh, the 
work you do out in Boulder, what's the best way for them to reach you? The best way to reach me is by contacting the Integrative Life Center at their website. Okay. Um, And um, also, you know, they can, they can just call the admissions directly. Mm -hmm. Okay. um, And, and talk to them about, you know, what we do and if, you know, they have questions and they want help and, you know, that phone number is seven two zero seven three seven three zero one six. So, you know, you call the admissions out there and they're they'll they'll put you in touch with me or they'll you know, they will um also allow, you know, um you to further understand how we work. And, you know, the reason I'm working with Integrative Life Center is our philosophy is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we come from a trauma perspective. We're not trauma informed or trauma focused. Yeah. And and so we want to help people, you know, get back to their authentic original self before the trauma, you know, set them up for self-destruction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it has been an enlightening and entertaining conversation. I know you are frantically busy. I know how long it's taken for us to get on your calendar. Uh, I'm sure that in today's uh, climate, uh, there's no shortage of folks needing help and now looking for help. I'm grateful for what you're doing. Yeah, thank Mm -hmm. you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael, for being here and making time. My pleasure. All right. Stay with us, listeners. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Um, Nate, that was worth the wait. <laughs> yeah, it was. Now, Michael's got kind of he got kind of a California vibe, or is that a Colorado vibe? That got, the, he's kind of sounds pretty laid back. He and is very laid back. Yeah, a little bit of a surfer dude thing going on there. Very at ease. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but the more of the conversation unwound. Uh, uh, the clearer it became to me that this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. I, uh, I love somebody coming in and, you know, we talk a lot with substances about the, the neurobiology of substance. Yeah. 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 Stuff. Yeah. 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 But I don't know if, have we had somebody talk about the neurobiology of sexual uh, compulsivity and addiction? Not really. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no. I think this is not directly one of the one of the first times we've had that conversation, and I think that you know, I mean, besides we've talked about trauma a lot uh, before, but um, but the fact that that dysregulated uh, early uh, autonomic nervous mm-hmm. system business, I I could geek out on that. That that fascinates me a lot. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I just yeah, and the fact he is always, uh, and this comes out in his book, by the way, he is always going back to early childhood experience, even when there's later trauma. Mm. Uh, you know, he's operating, uh, you know, under this conviction that, you know, the, 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 the pattern gets set very, very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that decision that I'm going to have to self 
self-soothe. I'm going to have to self-regulate. I'm going to have to, you know, uh, you know, find some way to attachment, uh, to maintain attachment, even if it isn't secure attachment, even if you're not attaching to my authentic self, Mm -hmm. I got to find, you know, some way to, to medicate that pain. And that begins very early. Yeah, yeah, it's a challenging thing. I I did. I found myself as I went through his book, reflecting a lot of my own childhood. I did find myself defending my parents mm-hmm. at, at times, and then uh, swinging around and you know indicting my parents. I I, I had an emotional reaction to the book, really. Mm, yeah, as as, yeah. as I uh, I thought a lot about my early childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope our listeners are able to um, kind of process this, that they pick up the book and, and also that they can reach out and, um, you know, uh, check in with ILC or begin again out in Boulder and um, take advantage of what these guests uh, offer. Because, I mean, these folks are doing some some new, I say new, um, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not the traditional path. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's proving effective, you know, so. Well, we are, of course, we're supporters of, uh, you know, community-based recovery. We're, mm-hmm. although we, you know, we'll, we'll do a loving, caring critique of 12-step recovery. We have a, 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 a great deal of regard for 12-step recovery and many other community-based groups. But we are also big advocates uh, of therapy and treatment. Uh, I know myself that you know best gift I ever gave myself was to go away for a brief treatment, mm-hmm. uh, and you know regular therapy, which brings to mind our sponsor. Yeah, and what a great segue that is! If <laughs> we want everybody to know about Try Better Help, that's H E L P TryBetterHelp dot com, and uh, you know Better Help is an online uh, therapy service where you're matched with a licensed professional therapist. Um, you'll fill out some questions and go through a process, and um, you can communicate twenty four hours a day with this. Um, uh, this site and you can schedule regular visits with the same therapists, uh, if you prefer. And, uh, this is a great opportunity right now as people especially feel maybe, um, unsafe going out or they don't really have access to great, um, services in their community, or maybe you're just not, um, ready to take the plunge into a, um, a local person in their office, but you can go online and for a very uh, reasonable rate, you can take advantage of Try Better Help. So, um, and when you go there, uh, log in with trybetterhelp.com slash positive sobriety, and you'll receive a 10% discount on the initial um, orientation and, and visit. So, um, we would love to know that um, you were taking advantage of those things. So, um, that's a great way for us to track what is helpful to our viewers. So, trybetterhelp.com com and uh, get on a path right now to uh, getting unstuck. Awesome. Awesome. And as David mentioned on our last episode, we are curious to hear from our listeners. How has uh, your recovery, your recovery experience been impacted by the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Uh, share your story with us. 
you can uh, drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, been another great conversation. So good to uh, spend this time with you, even at a distance, David. Yeah. Again, Nate, I miss you, but absolutely love getting to uh, have some, have some podcast time. So it's always great. Yep. All right, listeners, until next time, I'm Nate. I'm David. We are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer, Rex Schnelli. Music by Rex Schnelli. Theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, Hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett. Uh, Wardrobe (laughs) by Kathy Gifford. 